Section 9 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 Raleigh in Disgrace, Part 1. A gloom was cast over Elizabeth's rejoicings at the defeat of the Armada by the death of the Earl of Leicester in the following September. A little while before his death, Leicester, alarmed in all probability at the growing influence of Raleigh, had introduced a new favorite at court, his stepson, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex. After Leicester's death, Essex held the chief place in the Queen's favor and at court, and became the head of the party opposed to Raleigh. Essex was young, only twenty-one years old, brave, handsome, full of generous feelings, but devoured by vanity and ambition. He rapidly made his way in the Queen's affections, and though more than thirty years his senior, she demanded from him all the devotion of a lover, and lavished upon him in return all the tenderness of a mistress. It was hardly to be expected that Raleigh and Essex should get on well together. Raleigh felt himself supplanted by the new favorite, and his proud spirit could not put up with the slights cast upon him by his rival, a mere upstart boy. He withdrew from court for a time, and went to visit his estates in Ireland. Sir Francis Allen says in a letter written at this time, August 1589, My lord of Essex hath chased Mr. Raleigh from the court, and hath confined him into Ireland. In Ireland, Raleigh either renewed an old friendship or for the first time made friends with Edmund Spencer, the poet then little known, who was secretary to Lord Deputy Grey. In a poem dedicated to Raleigh called Colin Clout's Come Home Again, Spencer thus described Raleigh's coming to Ireland. One day, quoth he, I sat as was my trade, under the foot of Mole, that mountain whore, keeping my sheep amongst the coolie shade, of the green alders by the mully's shore, there a strange shepherd chanced to find me out, whether allured with my pipe's delight, whose pleasing sound is shrilled far about, or thither led by chance, I know not right, whom when I asked from what place he came, and how he hight himself, he did eclept, the shepherd of the ocean by name, and said he came far from the main sea deep, he, sitting me beside in that same shade, provoked me to play some pleasant fit, and when he heard the music which I made, he found himself full greatly pleased at it. Yet aiming my pipe, he took in hand my pipe, before that aimled of many, and played thereon, for well that skill he conned, himself as skillful in that art as any. He piped, I sung, and when he sung, I piped by change of turns, each making other merry, neither envying other nor envied, so piped we, until we both were weary. Nothing could be more delightful than the description given by these lines of the way in which Raleigh and Spencer passed their time together, but they seem, besides making verses, to have talked of more serious things. When asked what the shepherd of the ocean sang about, Colin replies, his song was all a lamentable lay of great unkindness and of usage hard, of Cynthia, the lady of the sea, which from her presence faultless him debarred. Cynthia was Queen Elizabeth, and from this we see that Raleigh complained of the harsh treatment he had received, which compelled him for a while to go away from court. 
Colin then proceeds to tell how Raleigh persuaded him to wend with him his Cynthia to see, whose grace was great and bounty most rewardful. Spencer returned to England with Raleigh in 1589, taking with him the first three books of the Fairy Queen. Raleigh must on his return soon have regained the Queen's favor, for he succeeded in getting for Spencer a kindly reception from the Queen. Spencer says, Yet found I liking in her royal mind, not for my skill, but for that shepherd's sake. In 1590 Spencer published the three first books of the Fairy Queen, and Elizabeth granted him a pension of fifty pounds a year. Spencer prefixed to these three books a letter to Raleigh, in which he set forth the object of his work to be to fashion a gentleman or noble person in virtuous and gentle discipline. Though Raleigh managed to recover the place in the Queen's favour which he had lost at first through the jealousy of Essex, a love intrigue which the Queen chanced to discover brought him into still deeper disgrace. Amongst the fair ladies at Queen Elizabeth's court was one who made a deeper impression upon the courtier's heart than the royal mistress to whom he pretended to make love. This was an orphan, Elizabeth Throgmorton, one of Elizabeth's maids of honour, a fair-haired, handsome woman, to whom Raleigh made love secretly, probably afraid of the Queen's anger, should she discover that he paid his devotions to any one but herself. Whilst Raleigh was busy with his love affairs, he was also busy with schemes for making reprisals on the Spaniards which occupied so many Englishmen after the Great Armada fight. Raleigh was probably anxious to find some excuse for withdrawing from England until the Queen's anger had blown over. It was a splendid opportunity for gaining wealth in the Spanish seas, and Elizabeth was more willing than ever to wink at the piracy of her subjects. One of the most important of these enterprises was undertaken by Lord Thomas Howard, cousin of the Lord Admiral, and Sir Richard Grenville. They set sail on the 10th March, 1591, with a fleet of some sixteen ships to which Raleigh contributed one vessel. They hoped to seize the fleet, bringing West Indian produce home to Spain. But Philip II heard of their designs and sent out a large fleet to oppose them. This fleet, consisting of fifty sail, was the biggest which the Spaniards had put on the sea since the Armada. Raleigh himself has left us an account of what followed in a paper called The Truth of the Fight About the Isles of the Azores. The English fleet was riding at anchor off the Azores on the afternoon of the last day of August, all unprepared to meet the enemy. The ships, writes Raleigh, all pestered and rummaging, everything out of order, the one-half part of the men of every ship sick and utterly unserviceable. The island had shrouded the approach of the Spanish fleet, and the English ships had scarce time to weigh their anchors. The last who got off was Sir Richard Grenville. He waited to take in the men who were on land and who would otherwise have been lost. Howard managed to get away by the help of the wind, but Grenville could not do so. He then utterly refused to turn from the enemy, alleging that he would rather choose to die than dishonor himself, his country, and Her Majesty's ship. So he turned with his single vessel to meet the Spanish fleet of fifty sail, hoping he might pass through the two squadrons in despite of them. Five Spanish ships attacked the Revenge. They made diverse attempts to enter her, but were repulsed again and again and at all times beaten back into their own ships or into the seas. The fight began at three o'clock in the afternoon, 
and continued very terrible all that evening. The Spanish ships which attempted to board the Revenge, as they were wounded and beaten off, so always others came in their places, she having never less than two mighty galleons by her sides. So it went on all through the night, but as the day increased, so the men of the Revenge decreased. At last, all the powder of the Revenge to the last barrel was spent, all her pikes broken, forty of her best men slain, and the most part of the rest hurt. Unto them remained no comfort at all, no hope, no supply either of ships, men, or weapons. The masts all beaten overboard, all her tackle cut asunder. Sir Richard, finding himself in this distress, having endured in this fifteen hours' fight the assault of fifteen several armadas, commanded the master gunner to split and sink the ship. He was determined to die rather than surrender to his enemies. The master gunner felt as he did, but the other officers begged Sir Richard to have care of them. When he would not hearken to them, they took the matter into their own hands and treated with the Spanish admiral Alfonso Bazan, who gave them honorable terms, for he granted that all their lives should be saved, the company sent for England, and the better sort to pay such reasonable ransom as their estate would bear, and in the mean season to be free from galley or imprisonment. Sir Richard, being thus overmatched, was sent unto by Alfonso Bazan to remove out of the revenge, the ship being marvelously unsavory, filled with blood, and bodies of dead, and wounded men like a slaughterhouse. Sir Richard answered that he might do with his body what he list, for he esteemed it not, and as he was carried out of the ship he swooned, and reviving again, desired the company to pray for him. The Spaniards, who greatly respected him for his valor, tended him with the utmost care, but he died of his wounds the second or third day after he had been taken on board the Spanish ship. Here die I, he said to the Spaniards who stood around, Richard Grenville, with a joyful and quiet mind, for that I have ended my life as a good soldier ought to do, who has fought for his country and his queen, for honor and religion. Wherefore my soul joyfully departeth out of this body, leaving behind it an everlasting fame, as a true soldier who hath done his duty as he was bound to do. But the others of my company have done as traitors and dogs for which they shall be reproached all their lives, and have a shameful name forever. Grenville's condemnation does not seem to have been deserved by Lord Thomas Howard, who would have come to his assistance if his crews would have let him. Raleigh thinks it was better that he did not, considering the smallness of his fleet, its bad condition, and the sickness of the men. The dishonor and loss to the queen had been far greater than the spoil or harm that the enemy could anyway have received. End of section 9